Welcome to the Indiana 4-H Clover Call Podcast, where our goal is to share information about the people and programs that make the Indiana 4-H Youth Development Program such an important part of our communities. We welcome youth and adult 4-H volunteers, 4-H youth and their families, extension professionals, and any others who are interested in providing positive opportunities for youth. We thank you for joining us for this episode, which begins now. My name is Rebecca Wilkins. I am the 4-H educator down in Harrison County. I am here with Dr. Melissa Justice and Denise Darer Spears of BOA and Courtney Steerwalt, our livestock specialist at the State 4-H office. I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself briefly and tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm Denise Darer Spears. I'm the public information director for the State Board of Animal Health, and I'm in charge of just various communications, education programs, uh, the website, newsletters, uh, all the information we try to push out to anybody who owns animals and livestock. We work a lot with the veterinary community as well and uh, try to be a liaison with other partner groups like 4-H. My name is Melissa Justice and I'm a field veterinarian for the Board of Animal Health. In addition to uh, doing my field duties, I'm also the director of small animal health programs, um, director of rabies programs, and director of brucellosis programs for our agency. My name is Courtney Steerwalt, and I'm the Indiana 4-H Animal Science Extension Specialist. So my job is that I get the opportunity to work with 4-H educators and county programs throughout the state to provide a direct connection to our land-grant university system, which is Purdue University, of course, and provide um, educational outreach, as well as work with initiatives like animal identification and providing programming at the Indiana State Fair 4-H events. Okay, so I'll put this question out there. What is the role of the Indiana Board of Animal Health? Our charge, if you look at Indiana code, is that we are basically responsible for animal health in Indiana. Um, So whether it's domestic uh, or farm animal, wild population, we work a lot with Indiana Department of Natural Resources. And we're also responsible for the inspection of uh, animal sourced products, meaning meat and dairy. So those are all things that we do here in our office. Um, Our agency actually has four primary mission areas. One of them is animal health, and we have some disease control programs. Um, Like Dr. Justice had mentioned, rabies. Uh, If you own a dog, cat, or ferret, state law requires they be vaccinated against that. So as part of our animal health programs, we also do animal care and welfare that we work with local law enforcement and animal control agencies on that. We also um, have livestock care standards are set by our office. Our next mission is disaster preparedness in that we work with the Indiana Department of Homeland Security to make sure the state's prepared if there was a large scale disaster that affects animals, whether it's an animal health disaster, like um, maybe foot and mouth disease or something like that, or a natural disaster like a tornado or a flood. And then finally, our fourth mission area is food safety. And we have the state's dairy inspection program where we inspect dairy farms, dairy plants, dairy um, processors, dairy haulers, and then we do meat inspection for state inspected meat processing plants. You want to add anything, Dr. Justice? No, I think that was pretty thorough. Okay. Okay. So how do you guys work? 
No, no, no. Um, how do you do? How do you guys uh, work with? How does BOA work with Indiana 4-H? I'll throw my interpretation out, and then uh, let Dr. Justice and Denise add where where needed. But basically, our charge with Indiana 4-H is that you know I always my tagline is that animals are the teaching tool um, of the educational opportunity for 4-H members, and an important part of that is making sure that we are in compliance with, of course, state and national guidelines for animal production and management, and of course, care. And primarily in this instance, working with them to ensure that uh, our health status is adequate and in line with where it needs to be in terms of um, in terms of our state, which is very important because uh, animal animal projects, animal 4-H youth livestock projects represent about 1% of the industry nationwide, but that 1% is very important. That 1% turns turns into larger numbers as we hope those youth continue careers with animal agriculture. So with that being said, uh, we work a lot with the Board of Animal Health, have a very nice relationship. Um, and anytime there's a disease outbreak, uh, we are charged with helping to make sure we are connected there in the local communities and having educators in all 92 counties. It's, it's a very simple process and the Board of Animal Health helps us navigate those conversations to ensure animal and public health um, throughout those processes. So more, most recently, of course, we're dealing with avian influenza and, uh, you know, we are we're in those communities where it's being impacted, of course, from a 4-H side of things, but more importantly, um, in this instance, from a commercial poultry poultry standpoint, we're there to help um, help them any way we can and getting the word out and getting, um, you know, birds and farms quarantined and, and doing whatever that takes. So that's kind of our approach on a larger scale of why it's important. Obviously, we talk about things like traceability. So uh, we were... One of the big um, back end, Denise can correct me, but I think it was 2006 or seven, whenever the premise ID program came about, uh, 4-H was one of the first really large entities to get on board and to get folks to realize the importance of disease traceability. So all of our 4-H members, of course, um, in, in those larger livestock species where needed, have a premise ID, and uh, that's kind of another buy-in. But more importantly, um, not more importantly, but another factor is also that we work together on our animal identification, which again, I said is a big, a big part of what I do, but I've spent countless hours, as have they with me, on just making sure that our regulations meet up with their standards for uh, the Indiana Board of Animal Health exhibition requirements and ensuring that uh, we do what we need to do as far as keeping track of those records so that in the event there is a big um, issue or something that needs to be traced, uh, BOA has an extremely incredible fast response rate for tracking down, down species and owners um, of those particular species to get things taken care of. And we're just a drop in the bucket of that system, but uh, you know, it's a full circle of life. And my favorite part of working with BOA is just they are a wealth of knowledge and resource. And so we have lots of opportunities. Dr. Justice, for instance, has helped us with several initiatives on the rabbit side of things. Denise has helped uh, 
helped us to correlate staff to provide educational outreach in communities on various topics, whether that's sheep and goat ID or um, more recent in the upcoming weeks, more recently, a, a an opportunity to talk to uh, 4-H livestock volunteers about tagging. Uh, those are things that are direct connections from BOA and Indiana 4-H. And uh, like I said, I, I'm pretty proud of our relationship and uh, just the direct line of communication that we have. Okay, so we'll we'll step a little more into the technical parts of, of our relationship. What is a premise ID? You mentioned it earlier. I can tell you what my interpretation of I, I, when I'm out in the, the field and I'm trying to explain to people why we have premises ID and what we use it for, I always kind of explain to people that it's like an emergency alert system for your animals that you have on your property. Um, and so many of us are, are aware of how an emergency alert system works for us, um, but they've never really thought about it for their animals. So your premises ID is linked to the, the physical location of your property and it's tied to the 911 address of a property. Um, we collect very basic data about, about the, the, for the premises ID, I guess. You know, we wanna know who's the owner, who's the primary contact, what's a good telephone number for those people, and what kind of species do you have on that property? And we realize that that can evolve over time, um, but that premises ID stays with that property. So if I leave, you know, if I move five places down the road, I would need to get a new premises ID because the one that I had before is going to stay with that 911 address when I move. But the whole, um, or the way that I have seen the premises ID used in action is that it gives us the ability to notify people when we have a disease of concern in their area that could affect the animals that they have on their property. So for instance, we've used it most recently just for the avian influenza outbreak that we had, uh, it gives us the opportunity to look at the people within a certain area around an infected farm who may have species of animals that could be impacted by that disease. And it gives us the opportunity to pick up the phone and call them. Prior to premises ID, we had to actually physically get in our cars and just drive up and down the roads and knock on doors and try to find people when they were home and find out if they had animals that might be impacted. Um, you know, and then I think a lot of people worry about it when we start doing door-to-door -door surveillance or when we start reaching out to them because they're concerned about how that might impact their, their animals. But really, in most cases, what we're offering is just the notification that their animals may be affected by this disease. And a lot of times we offer the opportunity for free testing for those animals to, to make sure that they're free of the disease, to make sure that they're not going to be impacted or they haven't been impacted. Um, I think a lot of people are concerned that we're going to come and try to take their animals. And, and really, that's not our goal. Our goal is just to make sure that they're aware of the disease, make sure they're aware of the biosecurity measures that they can take to try to prevent that disease. And then a, a lot of times we offer the free testing, um, which would be quite expensive for them if they had to call out their veterinarian and, and do that testing. And that's typically one of the things that we can do for them, um, you know, in addition to other things. The premises ID really is, I, I think, Denise, I don't know, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's really the primary way that we utilize it. Um, none of us really have time to do much other, you know, with that with that information other than just use it when we need it to react. That, that's that's exactly right, Dr. Justice, because the the it's really basically our 911 system for livestock. And um, it's really important to help us because we've got so many important agricultural commodities in the state of Indiana and 
um, really we need to be able to get a handle on these diseases early before it can cause widespread problems, um, whether it's um, small flocks or, or small herds or, or large commercial operations. All right, so we, um, many of our 4-H counties have tagging days coming up. Um, and we may have some new families or new 4-H volunteers out there that are like, okay, we do this. Why do we do this? What is traceability and how does it impact our 4-H program, the state or the nation? Denise, you wanna start with that or? Sure, I, I mean, um, traceability is really important and that it helps us to make sure that we, we, we know where, where an animal has been in if we have to if we have to determine if it's had contact with other animals in like Dr. Justice was talking about it's an alert system or warning system it's closely tied to the premises registration so that we can actually trace the movements and see what other contacts so there was potential for a disease to spread or from one animal to another and then possibly after a show it may go home or something like that I don't know Dr. Justice do you have a better way to explain that yeah I mean the, the way that I feel like we we use our traceability on a day-to-day -day basis is in our um, our commercial deer or our commercial servant industry here in, in Indiana. Um, and we really try to have 100% traceability for those animals because we don't have chronic wasting disease here in Indiana at this time. Um, and we want to make sure that we know where each of those animals have been. Um, and so the, the producer records the official ID of that animal. And then when they sell that animal, we ask them to record the date that they sold the animal, the official ID of that animal, and where that animal went. And the idea is, um, you know, if, if a certain animal has left the property before an infected animal comes on, then obviously that animal wouldn't be affected or involved in a trace out situation. Um, and with, with animals that are very, very expensive, like some of our, our um, boar studs and some of our, our bigger white-tailed deer or elk that have a high value, it's important for us to have that kind of traceability um, and, and know exactly when they were on a property, when they left a property, and whether or not they may have been exposed. And traceability allows us to do that. Another way that we use traceability is um, if we would happen to have a positive farm for whatever disease it is, we often will go look at their records. In addition to testing the animals that they have on their property, we'll look at their records and we'll find out what animals have they brought onto the farm recently, because that might be a source of infection for their, for their herd or their flock or something like that. And then we'll also look at their trace outs. So we look at the records of sales that they've had so that we can notify those people to let them know that they may have had an exposed animal that they purchased that could now be affecting their animals on their property. So having that traceability really gives us a, a quick and very efficient way to make contact with people who may have an animal that, that could be affected by a disease or you know, an illness or something like that. So it sounds like record keeping is a really important part of our 4-H project to focus on with some of our 4-H livestock producers. I think it is, and I think it's often one of the most overlooked um, because I think we all we all tend to believe, oh, I'll remember that. I'll remember that date. Or I've got the text messages that I can go back and look at. Um, and, and taking the time to write things down or to record them on a computer system or something like that, to me, I think is really important. And it, it, it does take you, you know, it does mean that you have to stop what you're doing and you have to write those things down. 
but in the event of you know some, needing to know where those animals went or where they came from, it's a lot easier if you have something written down about them in your record keeping than trying to recall off the top of your you know off the top of your head. Um, because in some of our traces, the the exact date that they came or they left the property really does make a difference. Yeah, and the the record keeping is really important too because we we are relying that on that heavily in Indiana as opposed to some states historically used to have to get a certificate of veterinary inspection, which was more time, more expense, um, just more hassle, if you will, um, if you wanted to move animals. And we um, let that go because we have the, the premises registration and traceability program in Indiana. So we've got that freedom to do that, but we have shifted that and rely heavily on that record keeping. So Courtney, I know here in Harrison County, when we tag the animal, we write that animal name down, we write that kid's name down, and then we send that to BOA. Absolutely. So especially with keeping track of our 840 RFID tags, um, that is, those are of course our, our federal tags. So we communicate that information directly to BOA. That's why it's so important that our counties have formalized ID days and know exactly where those tags are going because uh, we we are charged with being again that direct connection to ensure that animals are being properly identified. They're going to the correct premise. They're going to the correct 4 H'er. So that's why we have um, we have established to make sure that counties are keeping track of that and they turn that into the Board of Animal Health. Um, generally in the the summer months just to make sure that our records are as accurate as possible. Okay, so let's say there is an outbreak of a disease. What steps do you guys put into action? A lot of it, a lot of it falls, at least in, I'm the communications person, so my part, as opposed to what Dr. Justice would do, is um, trying to, to do a notification. We, we rely a lot on getting the, the final test results back from the laboratory, which is really important. Um, we may let, release some information if there's something suspected that perhaps the first test went through the diagnostic laboratory at Purdue, and then it has to go on to a federal lab to, for confirmation, which makes it an official notice. Um, so at some point in there, either as a suspect or an official, and all this depends on what species, what disease, um, timing, and what else has happened. Um, we'll, we'll try to get that information out. And part of that information is what protective measures someone who owns, if we're, like right now we're um, up to our eyeballs in highly pathogenic avian influenza response. And so right now, a lot of our messaging is trying to make sure that anyone who owns poultry knows how to keep them safe and knows what counties are affected because we have crews who are going out and um, they have to do some testing of the, the flocks, even small hobby flocks or 4-H flocks in the areas where we've had the cases found. And so a lot of that is trying to communicate that way and uh, help people understand what their role is in this um, and then also how to report. If they see something unusual, if you're seeing clinical signs in your birds, who do I call? What do I do? How do I get my birds tested to make sure that they're not sick as well? And a lot of that process is what you know, Dr. Justice was talking about, um, offering that testing at no charge. So that's kind of my role in, um, in that situation. So. Oh, I'm sorry, Janice. No, go ahead. I'll also add that another thing that, that we end up doing in a lot of these 
uh, disease investigations or these disease uh, outbreaks is to reassure the public um, whether or not the food is affected and safe to eat. Um, and so we're spending a lot of time during this avian influenza outbreak, you know, just making sure that people understand that the eggs are still safe to eat, the, the, the meat of poultry is still safe to eat. Now, obviously, we, we don't consume the meat on the affected farms, um, but it's not from a food safety standpoint why we're not doing that. We're, we're making those decisions from a disease mitigation standpoint. Um, and I've been dealing a lot, working with a lot of the, the backyard flocks who are up to this point unaffected. Um, but we often ask them that between the times of their first test and their retest 14 days later, they not move any poultry or poultry products off of their property. And so that raises a lot of eyebrows when we start asking people not to move eggs off of their property. They, they start becoming concerned, you know, is it, is it safe for me to eat those eggs? And we try to spend a lot of time reassuring them that yes, this is not a food safety issue. We're trying to mitigate the disease. And, and no matter how, how thoroughly you wash those eggs, they could still be a source of infection to the next property that they move to. So even though you can eat all the eggs you want on your property, we're asking you not to move them off of your farm until we have the reassurance that, that this particular property is negative. That way we're not moving that disease around the community um, on, the, on the eggs. Uh, so I feel like Denise, with a, a lot of our uh, disease outbreaks, we, we work very hard to reassure the public that, that the food and the products are safe to eat if indeed they are, um, and just making sure that there's not that impact on the industry in addition to what they're already facing. Yeah, I, I think another another important point, and this is part of uh, Dr. Justice, your, your role also is um, how closely our agency works with the veterinary community so that if there is something diagnosed, if a veterinarian sees a, an issue out there that may need some additional follow-up because our veterinarians like Dr. Justice have had additional training um, to be foreign animal disease diagnosticians. And so that's an opportunity for you, I don't know if you wanna talk about that at all, um, to, to work, with, work with the producers and the veterinarians to make sure that our food supply is safe Sure. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of, of the veterinarians that we work with, whether they're small animal veterinarians, large animal veterinarians, or mixed animal veterinarians, who um, will identify something that they think could potentially be related to one of the diseases that we don't have here in the United States, like our foreign animal diseases, things like foot and mouth disease, avian influenza, which we typically don't have, um, but unfortunately we have right now. RHDV2 and rabbits was, was another thing that we typically don't have here in the United States. And so when our veterinarians, our practicing veterinarians see something that they think could potentially be caused by one of those, one of those diseases, they reach out to our agency. And part of what we do is then reach out to the producer and make arrangements to come collect samples from those animals. Um, and most recently, um, the one of the, the things that we've spent a lot of time doing is when we've had some, either some cattle or some horses or some swine that end up having vesicles or blisters or something like that on their, their mouths or around their coronary bands of their feet, it's physically indistinguishable from, from the more common things that we would typically see cause those types of, of vesicles from foot and mouth disease. So in those situations, we always take that very seriously. We always send a, a foreign animal disease diagnostician out to collect those samples. We like to try to um, 
collect paired samples. And what that means is that we collect one set of samples that's gonna to go to our laboratory at Purdue University, where we can get a very quick turnaround, but it's not an official diagnosis like Denise was saying earlier. And then we also at the same time, try to send another complete set of samples to our national labs, either in Ames, Iowa, or out at Plum Island, New York, where they can make an official diagnosis. And that's, a, that's important because we can get our quick, you know, we can get our quick um, results from Purdue University to kind of help us make decisions as we're, as we're working through things. Um, but then we also have at the same time, we're getting those samples to Ames, Iowa or to Plum Island, New York, and we can get a quicker turnaround on those tests as well for our official diagnosis. Um, so we, we, we don't do a lot of foreign animal disease investigations here in Indiana every year, thankfully, um, but it's important whenever someone suspects something that we have a team of, of 10 plus veterinarians who are able to go out and help make that quick determination of whether or not we're at risk. At what level does an outbreak have to be in order to affect things like our county fairs or our state fair? I, I, could, I could try to answer that. I think it really depends on the disease. I mean, just quite honestly, um, you know, we had um, several years ago, we had some um, swine at, at one of our county fairs um, that there was some concern that they may have some influenza-like illness. Um, and that I think had overall had a, a tremendous impact on our show season that year because there was concern that that could be a zoonotic infection, something that would affect not only the exhibitors or the families that were handling these animals, but also the people who were moving through the barn. And so we spent a great amount of time, um, you know, evaluating those animals. We spent a lot of time at swine check-in at the state fair, taking temperatures on animals and assessing those animals individually to see if they may potentially be sick before we let them get into the barns. And then we spent a lot of time trying to educate the public, you know, that they needed to think about what they were doing when they were in those barns, not eating or drinking, not smoking, um, you know, trying to keep children from touching things and then putting their fingers in their mouth. Um, but then there, there are other diseases or other infections that really probably may not have that much of an impact um, because either they affect the commercial sector only um, or they don't have a huge zoonotic implication. So I think it's really independent on, I, mean, I think it really depends on the disease or the infection that we're dealing with and, and how it affects humans and, and that type of thing. That was a great answer, Melissa. Okay, good. <laughs> I agree. I think it's an important question because that is one of the major questions we get asked anytime there's anything trending in the news, if you will, is, am, you know, am I going to be able to show my birds at the county fair? And obviously, from our perspective, we're going to do whatever we need to do to keep the industry, because we have to remember that 4-H, again, is a, is a part of a larger scale um, system in our state. And so we want to do our best to protect those producers that this is their, their primary source of livelihood. And so we do what we need to do to respond appropriately in that matter. And if that means that, you know, we, we have to sit out a season for a particular species or change the way that we do things, then that's how we're going to respond because we want, we want those producers to thrive in our, in our state. So what is biosecurity and what role do 4-H-Sures play in that process? Biosecurity is the steps that we take every day to protect our animals from infection. Um, 
And 4-Hers absolutely play a very important role in that. I think everyone who has animals, whether it be dogs and cats that live in our home or, you know, a, a, a huge commercial building full of animals, we have to take the pertinent biosecurity steps to try to protect those animals. And I think that can involve a lot of things. That could be, um, you know, changing our shoes or using a foot bath before we go into the barn um, to make sure that we're not tracking things in on our on our feet or on our shoes. It could be wearing a pair of coveralls only when you go in to handle those animals. For our commercial swine industry, biosecurity in a lot of the cases means using a shower in shower out facility. Um, and that's one of the situations where an individual enters the barn and then they actually have to take a shower and wash their hair. They leave all of their clothes and all of their belongings on one side of the shower and when they exit the other side of the shower, they put on uh, you know, clothing and, and things like that that belong entirely to the barn so that they're not tracking anything into that barn on their clothing. Other things that we talk about with biosecurity, um, and I think this is probably one of the most important things for 4-Hers, is making sure that you're not sharing your show equipment when you're at shows, because a lot of the, the infectious agents that we have can be moved from animal to animal on things like our show sticks, our brushes, um, shampoo bottles, feed scoops, any of those things. So making sure that you have the equipment that you need when you go to the show and that you're only using it on your particular set of animals. Other things that, that I highly recommend and that I can't stress enough is that when you return home or when you're bringing an animal back into your barn or you're buying new animals, that you take the time to isolate them or quarantine them um, essentially keeping them separate from the rest of your animals so that you have an opportunity to observe them for a period of time. Most of the time that's 30 to 45 days. It really kind of depends on the infectious agent that you're thinking about. But what you're doing is, is you're keeping them away from the rest of your animals to make sure that you have the, the opportunity to watch them or to do the appropriate testing needed to make sure that they're healthy enough to go in with the rest of your animals. Um, and I, I, I I really feel like that's probably one of the most important things that people can do. It really doesn't cost anything to isolate them. Maybe it just takes a little bit extra work to set up a, a separate pen area or a separate kennel or something like that, depending on what species you're, you're using or you're, you're showing, um, but it really can make the difference. I can't tell you the relief that people feel when they find out that an animal that they've either brought back from a, a exhibition or something like that or an animal that they purchased is diagnosed with a disease that could be devastating for everyone. And they say, we didn't have that animal in the rest of our, you know, in, in our kennel or in the rest of the barn. So they know that only one animal is impacted rather than everything else they have. All right, Dr. Justice, uh, we're down here in the Southern part of the state. And recently we heard some, some information about a potential rabbit virus breaking out. Sure. Um, we have, for the, the last year and a half, two years, we have been following a situation predominantly in the southwestern United States called rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, or RHDV2. Um, and this is a virus that is unfortunately incredibly contagious. Um, it's a very, very hardy virus, so it's very easily moved around by rabbits, rabbit products, people, hay, things like that. Um, and up until just recently, last fall, we didn't have a readily available vaccination. So the only thing that people could do was just to make sure that they had excellent biosecurity. 
the virus is um, generally one that just causes sudden death in these rabbits. Um, and so a lot of times what producers will notice is they'll go out and they'll just have a higher than normal death loss in their rabbits. So maybe, um, you know, and instead of having no rabbits that, that have died overnight, maybe they'll have two or three, uh, which is really unprecedented for them. Um, we recently had a diagnosis of RHTV2 in Northern Kentucky. Um, and so that's pretty close to, to some of our rabbit producers in Southern Indiana. And there's been a lot of concern about what they need to do. Um, and biosecurity is the biggest thing. We talked previously about that and you know, just making sure that they're taking every precaution to keep their rabbits safe from anything that might be outside. And, and some of the things that might entail is you know, having sh shoes specifically that you only wear in the environment where your rabbits are. So if your rabbits live in the house, a lot of people have said, you know, there's a, a no shoes in the house rule. Um, you know, you take your shoes off when you get to the door and you don't bring them inside because you don't want to track that virus in. For rabbits that are raised outdoors um, or um, in, in outbuildings or things like that, a lot of people have started where they'll have an entirely separate set of shoes and clothing and things like that that they're going to wear into that room um, so that they're not tracking those things in. Unfortunately, we also have to be really careful about where we're sourcing hay and vegetables and things like that. Uh, because a lot of those products are coming from the southwestern United States, California, and things like that, where the disease is now currently considered to be endemic because it's both in the wild and domestic population. Um, the good news is, is like I was, I was saying earlier, we did have a, a domestically produced vaccination that became available last fall. It's been a little bit challenging, I think, for some producers to gain access to because there's just so much demand so quickly for the product. There are rabbit producers all over the United States who want access to this product. Um, and it's, it's maybe a little bit more expensive than ones, what some people want um, to, to put into their rabbits. But know that there's a vaccine that is available. It can be purchased um, through your veterinarian. Anyone can give the vaccination. So your veterinarian can give the vaccination. A producer can give the vaccination to their animals if they feel comfortable doing so but it does have to be purchased through a veterinarian right now. Um, and that was the, the, the company's wishes um, just because their distribution is so challenging right now. There's, there's so many people wanting access to this product that they've asked to, to limit purchasing powers just to licensed veterinarians. Um, we've had opportunities within the state of Indiana for people to, have, um, to go to vaccination clinics where you know, either a rescue group or a veterinarian will purchase that product or gain access to that product, and then people bring their pets to that location. One of the, the key factors with that, though, is biosecurity, making sure that you're not just moving from animal to animal to animal. So wearing the proper uh, protective equipment, gloves, um, you know, jackets or, or um, disposable Tyvex or something like that so that you make sure you're not passing that virus from animal to animal. But the, the vaccination seems to show great promise right now. It's not fully licensed by the Food and Drug Administration, um, but they're working towards full licensing and, improve, uh, and approval, and hopefully we'll have that within the next 12 months. But right now, it's, it's very similar to the COVID vaccine. It has emergency use authorization, and so um, we're able to have access to it and we're able to use it when we need it, as opposed to waiting until we get full authorization. 
we did several uh, videos and, and educational opportunities, particular to RHDV2 last year. Um, and those materials are available on our website um, under the, the species specific information and rabbits. There's a lot of good information, I think, about RHDV2 videos, PowerPoints, things like that. Denise, how can uh, our 4-H members stay up to date with the latest BOA news? Well, we try to uh, offer as much information as we can that is helpful to those who want it. One of the good ways is we have a website that's pretty thorough. If you want to know what the uh, this year's exhibition requirements are to show in any show, um, we have that on our website. We also have sections that uh, feature specific information, whether it's rabbits, poultry, uh, swine, whatever. And once you go to that web, that part of our web page, um, most of our our pages have an option at the top in a little red icon where you can subscribe to get email and or text updates if anything is happening in that particular sector. We'll push those out if someone wants to opt in um, to receive that information. Um, we are getting a lot of traffic right now on our avian page um, just because of the high path avian influenza situation. So um, folks can sign up for that. And we have a variety of information that we push out. And we try not to fill up your inbox with too much, but we try to do it when it's important. What is your favorite part of your career? Me? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's um, the, the fun part about working at the Board of Animal Health is it's just it's doing a lot of good work with good people. And um, we get to interact with so many different people and uh, different aspects of it. It's really fulfilling and rewarding in that way. Um, it's just been, it, it's been a lot of learning and new things. And so um, there's a lot of adventure on that side of the job as far as um, staying, uh, staying on top of new things. I would say my favorite part of this career is uh, just the, the flexibility that, that this job provides um, as well as the diversity. Uh, before coming to the Board of Animal Health, I did small animal emergency practice for about 13 years. And while you never really knew or you could never predict what you were going to be facing, you pretty much knew you were going to be inside those four walls and you were going to be seeing patients all day and you were going to be there between this time and this time. With the Board of Animal Health, you know, I, I don't ever know what I'm going to be doing. Some days I'll be testing cattle for tuberculosis. Some days I'll be testing birds for avian influenza. Um, I get the opportunity to do a lot of education and outreach with the various different programs that we had. Last year, we focused a lot about rabbit, the, the rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus and providing up-to-date information to everyone who might be impacted by that disease and, and just trying to make sure that, that everyone had the resources that they needed. Um, some days we're, we're looking at horses. And so I like that the opportunities and the, the diversity that we have in this this field um, to just be able to get out and interact with the public and learn about a lot of different diseases that I never would have faced in, in clinical practice. Do you have any tips for 4-Hers interested in a career in animal science or veterinary science? I would say to try to get out there and, and shadow as many people as you can, um, explore as many different opportunities as you can, um, I know from a veterinary perspective at Purdue University, there were a lot of kids who went into pre-veterinary medicine with me um, our freshman year in undergrad um, and found out throughout the years that maybe that wasn't the career opportunity that they wanted. So I think just being open to 
any opportunities in the ag industry. There are so many things that you can do. You know, take the time now while you're 4-Hers to volunteer at an animal shelter or at a veterinary clinic that, you know, that, that works in the species that you might be interested in and see if it's something that you could see yourself doing down the road. Um, you know, we had a, a couple of my classmates in veterinary school who had never volunteered at a veterinary practice and their first day in surgery, they found out that it, it just wasn't for them. They just didn't have the stomach for it. Um, and that was really unfortunate because they were in vet school at that point. The good news is, is that, you know, they'll have a lot of opportunities to do things other than just clinical practice. We've, we've really got those opportunities in veterinary medicine now, but there's so many things that you can do in the ag industry. So don't, um, you know, don't, just look at one thing that you think might be best for you. Be open to all of the different opportunities and explore those possibilities now. Um, and just know that things are gonna evolve over time. I would have never guessed when I graduated that I would be working for the Board of Animal Health doing a non-clinical practice, um, working with large animals. That was just never even on my radar. Um, but it, you know, I, I had the opportunity and here I am and I, I wouldn't look back for anything in the world. So I think just, you know, keep your eyes open, take the, 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 take the opportunities to explore and find out what all the possibilities are in animal agriculture. Anything to add, Denise? Um, I, th I think getting that hands-on experience is really important and, um, and, and just general advice, you never know where you're going to end up. Um, like Dr. Justice was saying, um, frankly, when I was uh, in, in, ag, in ag communications, when I was a major in college, I never took a an single animal science class at all. Um, I focused all of my coursework on agronomy and botany and um, entomology and those kinds of sciences. So um, I think just keeping your mind open and um, look for opportunities to learn, I think that's really important. Any news or new messages you want to send out to our 4-H community? Other than um, make sure you uh, check to make sure your animals have the proper official identification. When you get to tagging day, look for the shield to make sure that you've got official ID on your animals. That's uh, something we're really pushing right now. Um, so everyone knows that what official ID is and to keep it in place. Don't be cutting it out. Courtney, anything to add? I don't. Like I said, I, I think uh, we've covered a gamut of what we do. And I think it's just important that 4-H members and families recognize the correlation between our two organizations and that our goals are to coincide with what they're doing. And uh, I think that's the important message in, in this process, in this in this relationship is that we do work together and we have uh, listening ears on both ends and it's very much appreciated. I can add to what Courtney said. Um, you know, I think it's important for 4-H members to remember that we're the stewards of these animals. It's our responsibility to make sure that they're safe and healthy and well cared for. And one of the things that the Board of Animal Health can, can do is provide resources and education. So if 4-Hers uh, or participants are interested in a particular species that they've not had experience with, certainly reach out to our website, you know, look there and see if you can get information about some of the health concerns, things that you can do to improve the welfare for those animals or the, the um, you know, the health of those animals. Um, just remember that, you know, we, we are all they have and, and we need to get as much education and as much information as we can to make sure that we take care of them the way that they need to be. 
All right. So, well, I'd like to thank my guests for being here today, Dr. Justice Denise Deer Spears and Courtney Steerwalt. Um, don't cut out your 4-H tags or your ID tags. And that's the end of this Clover call. Interested in learning more about Indiana 4-H? We invite you to visit our website, extension.purdue.edu slash 4-H, or contact your local Purdue Extension office and ask for the 4-H Youth Development Extension Educator. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss an episode. We look forward to joining you again on the next Indiana 4-H Clover Call.